Deborah Khan is the Emmy-nominated showrunner and executive producer of Netflix's The Diplomat, a political thriller series starring Kerry Russell and Rufus Sewell. She's worked with television's leading showrunners, including Shonda Rhimes, Terrence Winter, Stephen Levinson, and Howard Gordon. Her career began working on Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing, which has led to projects such as Showtime's Homeland, HBO's Vinyl, which was co-created by Martin Scorsese, and ABC's long-running medical drama Grey's Anatomy. She's winner of two Writers Guild of America awards for The West Wing and FX's limited series Fosse Verdun. Deborah Khan, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. And so with The Diplomat, the series that you write, produce and show run, and of course you have a long history of writing about powerful women and men and the dynamics of power. But with The Diplomat, you're kind of building on some strengths that you had with the West Wing and Homeland Mm -hmm. and exploring other territories as well. Could you just set it up what the concept idea was going into The Diplomat? So the idea was to look at what it's like to be an ambassador for the United States abroad and to do that in the context of a married couple, both of whom are in the same field, and what kind of tensions come from being in a relationship with somebody where you're both collaborators and personal partners and sometimes competitors. And what does that do to your life? What does it do to your work experience? And it felt like a military alliance and a marriage are not so different in many ways. You know, you get together under certain circumstances and then time marches on and things change and both parties change and you're still in this relationship that either can or can't bend with you. Yeah, you could say that having a long-standing relationship does take diplomacy and (laughs) a lot of skills, a lot of those soft power skills. And it's interesting the different ways that men and women obtain and maintain power. And you really explore this because Mm -hmm. it's something that, that Carrie Russell's character is Kate you know, she was going to be going to Afghanistan. That was her trajectory. Yeah. And then she's given this role as ambassador to the UK, uh, quite different. Yeah. So how does she navigate that transition? That's a role that has power, but also you're answerable to a lot of people. How does she navigate it? Not all that well. She is hitting a lot of speed bumps and tripping over her own feet. And I think that she believes that she's not prepared for this role, even though maybe she is. I think she believes that it's very different than what she's done before. And it maybe isn't, but it feels different. And the trappings of it are very different. And it takes her a long time to figure out that she actually may be able to swim in this sea in a way that she feels like she can't when she first lands there. Yeah, I guess dealing with conflict zones does prepare you for a lot. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But then she has that in her arsenal. But she also understands there's other things like she's never been the public face and she understands that there is power in that. She does. She's watched other people do it up close. And I think she feels like she knows how it's done. She's not excited to go do it. It's not what she was looking for. But I think she feels like she understands it. But then when she actually walks into the role, she realizes she has no idea how to do it herself. I think she felt like what her partner always did was kind of easy for him and it came naturally. And some of it did. And some of it was just a set of skills that he's developed over time that she hasn't. 
Indeed. And yet you would say because her spouse was ambassador and he was good at it. He was respected. Okay. Yeah. He got into some, you know, there's some past there that he can't mend some bridges, but he understood how to navigate and he is skillful for that. And he's not really giving it up. Really, he's still finding his way to to hold on to power in different ways. But I think that being a female ambassador has a different expectations. Like mm-hmm. the male ambassador, you would never be thinking about what are you, I guess you would think about what you're wearing, but it's going to be a dark suit for everybody. It's not, Yeah. it's not quite, you don't make a statement by the statement dress or something yes, like that. Exactly. Yeah. I think for a woman to do it, there's a sort of exaggerated version of what men go through in the same position. I think when you're in a very public leadership position like that, you do end up kind of handing over all of yourself, mind and body to the process. You're on camera a lot. You're around a lot of people who want to be close to you a lot. All of those dynamics are really exaggerated when it's a woman and when the presentation is much more involved and the expectations are different and you're supposed to do all the glam and all of the policy wonk stuff at the same time, which is a slightly more complicated juggling act. Yeah. And it's oddly enough, I have a number of friends who are female ambassadors. and. And so, yeah, and friends who are, you know, children of ambassadors. So I've kind of seen this kind of going on and I've always admired that. And I've seen the dance of the male spouse who, of the female ambassador and how they always manage to like say something, but you're not really sure what they've just said, (laughs) you know, always (laughs) keeping it cool. That's a real art, right? Yes, it really is. Who are your ambassador friends? Oh, well, New Zealand and South Africa. And anyway, so I, don't, I should That's probably great. So you know about. what you're talking about. We, okay, But yeah, I mean, they're great. And they're able to put on this image of what looks very confident and understated and neutral. And yet there's a lot going on underneath that is so complex. And that sense of appropriateness is just like riding on a roiling ocean of competing interests within your own country and between countries. And I think it's amazing what they managed to pull off. And I hadn't realized, I guess, that the number of ambassadors to the UK uh, just was revealed in script end up becoming VPs. Some say it is just a coincidence. Some say it is not. Five U.S. presidents used to be U.S. ambassador to the court of St. James, to the United Kingdom. So one of them was John Adams. Like it goes back... (laughs) It goes back pretty far. But yeah, there have been five. So there are ways in which I think Kate looks at that role as more style than substance, but it can go pretty far and it can reach its hand into a lot of places. London is the center, the nexus of so many kind of different international axes. Yeah. And so that's unusual, I think, for other hostings might not have that same trajectory. Yeah. I was also wondering which female leaders you might have been looking at in terms of the crafting the character of Kate. Some, I mean, Hillary Clinton is certainly an influence. And a lot of women who are leaders in other professions were also a big influence. But in a lot of ways, I write women the same way that I write men and I give the same kind of material to different actors and they filter it through the lens of their life and their experience and their body and it comes out feeling different. But I don't think of them as all that different when they're coming out onto the page. 
I was also wondering, just because she is currently Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, I found her so formidable, you know, in her previous roles. I mean, she really did a lot. And I could think about, oh, her transition. It made me reflect on what her transition might have been like. Yeah. I mean, Kamala Harris is absolutely an influence on the character, as is Susan Rice, as is Samantha Power, as is Condoleezza Rice. It never occurred to me that they both have the same last name. I was like, did I just get that wrong? But I think that all of those women sort of came to positions of power at a time when, for the most part, you know, they were the only woman in the room in a lot of different environments. And that kind of navigating of being one of the guys and also being there as a woman, I think, is a particularly elaborate challenge. I think you're a little bit expected to be both at the same time, which is sometimes possible and sometimes not. And you mentioned Hillary Clinton, and I just imagine the dynamics playing themselves out a little bit that way. Not for her, but I just don't imagine Bill Clinton being the quiet spouse. Yeah, that relationship is a big influence on the story. And the two of them navigate the transition between whose turn is it and who's driving and who's in the passenger seat and how each of them navigate that. And it's something that it turns out happens in the Foreign Service a lot. There are a lot of what are called tandem couples, people meet doing this work that is important for their country and the whole world, and they're really passionate about it, and then they're passionate about each other, and that kind of turns into this delicious electric chemical thing that is exciting and can lead to a tremendous amount of really intense love. And then you're married, and it's 15 years later, and you're both at different points in your careers and in the Foreign Service. So like somebody's got to decide we're going to this continent and not that one. And they can't really have the same kind of high level job in the same place at the same time. So somebody is always a little bit in the back seat. And I think everybody goes into that situation is like, well, we're going to take turns and then it'll be even and it'll always work out. But at the end of the day, it kind of doesn't work out like that. You know, it's one person's turn a little bit more often than it's the other. And I think it's the same kind of thing that happens in a lot of marriages. It's just an exaggerated, heightened version of it and very public. Yeah. I get, and again, it's a career thing. You, and also, you highlight the difference as well. There are career diplomats yes. and there are others who get these postings, but it hasn't been what they've really devoted their lives to. It's kind of a reward for services done. Yes. There are career ambassadors and there are what are called politically appointed ambassadors. And a lot of the people who get political appointments get them because they've been very close to the administration. Maybe they've raised a lot of money for somebody They often come with a lot of experience, but sometimes they don't. And they're in this posting and they're learning what that world is like on the job. And then there are people who start out in the Foreign Service when they're young and they've got 25 years of experience all over the world before they take a job like an ambassador. And it's a different set of skills often, but it can be the same expectations for what that person's going to do in a crisis, whether or not they're coming into it with that level of experience. And so it's interesting with the relationship with all the relationships, but between Kate and Hal, they're very close. As you say, you can't be posted all over the world and not be close. You have that shorthand. There's trust, but there's also distrust. There's this great closeness. Like for some things at the end of the day, no matter what has gone on, she turns to him. You know, they even 
even eat out of the same plate. Like they seem to be that close. So he's the most trusted person in each other's life. And at the same time, there's they're going to get divorced, right? Or we don't know. We keep some going back and forth. I think in a marriage, there's a lot of days where you're going to get divorced. And then the next day, you're completely in love with each other. And that line turns out to be a lot thinner than I ever imagined that it would be before I did it. And I think she feels like she's at a crisis point a lot. And he feels like, well, this is just how it goes and we'll ride it out. And they have different expectations about what the relationship is supposed to look like. And I think marriage feels like that. And the difference between being in a fight that you've had a thousand times and being in a fight that ends it all, you don't know until later which one you're in. Yeah. And again, it's great to see that paralleled. You have the outward crises that they're navigating, untrustworthy countries and political players, and they have all this conflict and, you know, sail the ship in the same direction. And there's also a lot of timeliness in terms of relationships with Russia and how do you navigate that and who do you trust? Mm-hmm. I think I'm not sure they put it aside. It's interesting. I was just thinking about that as you were saying it. Do they put it aside or do you just get in the bed and it's all there and you still got to figure out a way to go to sleep or have sex or whatever it is that you're going to do there? I think that's what makes this relationship so heightened is that you can't separate those things. There's no break from it, which makes it more intense and in some ways more exciting and close and in some ways more like torture. Yes. And there's a great ensemble as well. And we should say, like, for people who are familiar with some of your other work, like, say, Homeland, which was great. There are moments of humor in that, too. But let's say it was a heavy drama. I felt that Carrie was so very tough, but she didn't have even a rock like how to turn to always at the end of the day. So this has these moments, these light moments. Mm -hmm. And how did you see the story as this ensemble? I think that for me, the lightness, first of all, I mean, how desperate are all of us for lightness and optimism and hope and a sense of possibility in the people who are navigating and steering world affairs? That was really important to me to bring that in. And I think that I see all really dramatic moments as kind of streaked through with a bit of the absurd. Those are always the moments that stand out to me. You're not just at a funeral, but you're at a funeral where somebody dropped their purse and there's now a thousand things on the floor and a lot of people trying to pretend that there aren't. Those moments, for me, the moments where our humanity really kind of shows through the cracks. And I was interested in this world that's so much about a facade and so manicured and presentational and looking at those like tragically human moments that pop up right in the middle of all of that. The juxtaposition between those two things, I think, I find to be delightful. So I certainly wanted that to be a part of it. It's interesting that you mentioned Carrie in Homeland because she has like a work husband, right? She has Saul and that relationship has gone on for a long time, but he's not also the husband husband. So the dynamic with Kate and Hal is they have that kind of partially partners and partially a mentor mentee kind of thing because He's been at it for longer. He's a little bit older. But then they also are needing each other as people and as life partners. And so the amount of kind of cross currents that exist in every dynamic are like becomes kind of mind boggling. 
Yes, and it really makes me reflect on nature of power. What does having power really entail? Like in some ways, you know, she had more power and freedom when the spotlight wasn't on her. You know, she could make decisions at the moment. Now there's the chain of protocol and all these things, and everyone's watching her. So in a way, she has power, but she's accountable to all these people. And so that's kind of something that she's reckoning with, right? Yeah. I think that it's such an individual thing, like what you consider the power position to be. And there's this sense that the people standing out front are the ones who have the power. And she's always managed to find ways to wield a tremendous amount of power outside that position. And and there's great freedom in the margins. But I think she doesn't expect to find the amount of power that ultimately there is in this role, and particularly in kind of like the alchemical thing of what doing this role with her kind of experience is. She transforms the role when she takes it because she's coming in with a kind of a different skill set. So she's able to turn it into something different than kind of her preconception, which is a little bit judgy from the get-go, and also really what anybody else expected her to be able to do there. Yeah. And you have, which is very fascinating to see behind the scenes, you know, people, they're grooming her for power and Mm -hmm. uh, this new role and as the vice president, see, as well as uh, currently the ambassador to the UK. And so it's interesting to see the roles of these kingmakers or groomers just kind of telling, no, that's not how it's done. This Mm -hmm. is how it's Mm -hmm. done. And I would love to know also about your research process, because I know you've been writing these political dramas for years. (laughs) Who are you shadowing? Oh, a lot of people who are um, good at this. And I had great mentors. I had really great mentors. So I'm a showrunner on a show. I'm the one you're interviewing. But like, there's a really big team of people who did this. And along, they have specialties and skills and talents that I don't have. And I think that we like to look at somebody who's in a leadership position and say, look at what they did. And we don't recognize the fact that there's a huge team of people creating this thing that we attribute to an individual. And certainly in political environments, I didn't work in Washington for a long time, but I worked there a little bit. And I very much got a sense of like the incredible talent of a group of people who are standing behind somebody who's an elected leader helping them make decisions and in research and the forming of strategies. And we're attributing to one mind what is actually the work of 20. So grooming is part of it and your presentation is part of it. But even more is the information and the knowledge that gets you to a position where you can make a decision on something strategically or tactically that's complicated. I think that's what Stuart and so many of the characters in that place are bringing to her. And it takes her a while to kind of figure out, does she trust them? Does she think that they're really value-added? Is she going to have to do this by herself? Sometimes it takes time to really embrace that and be able to utilize the skills that are around you. But nobody really does it by themselves. I think that's a myth. Yeah. And you spoke of your own mentors and collaborators, and they are really some of the best, we should say, yes. Aaron Sorkin, Shonda Rhimes, yeah. Terrence Winter, Stephen Levinson. And we haven't mentioned all the shows you've also worked on, Fosse Verdun, <laughs> The Grey's Anatomy. I mean, it's quite a lineup there. But just tell us a little bit about what you learned from some of your collaborators and mentors. Everything. Everything, everything. It's a big job. And I was so fortunate to be able to watch a bunch of people do it in different ways. 
Aaron had an incredible ability to take really complicated, nuanced, dense material and turn it into something light and delightful and entertaining and real and true. I worked with Aaron on the West Wing and I worked with John Wells on the West Wing. John is an incredible showrunner and mentor of writers, and he considers it his responsibility to really train people to be showrunners and give them the skills to have this job, which comes a little bit later than when you're just starting out as a staff writer on a show. And so, you know, watching him look at a production and see how do you marry what your vision is on the page and what this kind of dream world that came to you in a room by yourself is with a production where you're working with 200 people and there's a budget and there's not enough time. I started with the two of them, and I felt like that was an incredible, incredible foundation. Obviously, Shonda knows how to look at a story and kind of add magic fairy dust to it so that it turns into something like mythical and delightful and a lot of times really tragic and painful. And I felt very lucky to watch that happen enough to sort of like, where does the wand have to tap? And at what point do you need to bring in that sense of playfulness and fantasy to your story that's really rooted in something in order to kind of give it an unexpected life and a dynamism that just makes it delicious to listen to. And then Alex Gonza at Homeland, just his ability to take infinitely complex international global conflicts and both represent them with a sense of accuracy and also human, emotional, personal, individual journey. That's its own kind of magic trick. Indeed. And we should say, I mean, I feel enormously educated by these programs that you've worked on and now with The Diplomat, because it is so hard. If you just turn on the news, you know, there are some personalities, but it can be so depressing. You don't understand how these, you know, conflicts come about and you wish there was a way through. So it's it's educational. It also gives one hope that, wow, there's resilience and there's people working behind the scenes. We don't get to see that in our own lives, but it gives us faith in the system and also makes me understand the ways in which it can be broken, but it can also be sustained by people who really care. I feel like film and television are often representing corrupt power and evil in leaders. And that exists. But I've been writing about people in that world for a long time and have had the privilege of talking to a lot of them. And for the most part, they're smart people with integrity and good values and they're good at what they do and they just want to help people in their own country and around the world. And even with those really good people at the helm, it can really all go to hell in ways that we couldn't have anticipated and they couldn't have. And that to me is what's most interesting about like, how do you open something that we all look at and we're like, oh, this is terrible. War is bad. People are suffering. How do we wind up in these situations? Looking at the little moments that spark a series of dominoes that end up in a global conflict. That's really interesting for me to kind of pull apart. Look, I always had a hard time reading the newspaper. I found it very, very overwhelming in the suffering that you're seeing described every single day. And for me, coming at it through the lens of what's a story that I can relate to that that I can follow a character through that they're surviving, for me, was a kind of a way to come at it and not have to turn away from the darkness of it. 
Yeah, so I'm very interested in how your process is when you're reading the newspaper or watching the news, finding that one story, because you can't tell the story of a million people. Like, yeah. you know, how do you focus in on it? This is what's interesting. How do you know what the good idea is? Sometimes you have to go through all these bad ideas. So how has that worked for you? When I'm interviewing people, when I'm talking to people who actually do this, I usually ask them about what's the nightmare scenario, what keeps you up at night that people aren't thinking about. So I get the answer to that from a bunch of different people and I find one that feels fresh and interesting and worth focusing on and then apply to that the needs of the characters and the needs of the relationship dynamics. At which point I feel like I'm winding up the wind-up doll but then it's gonna go where it goes. At a certain point it has a life of its own. I can't necessarily decide that I'm going to do a conflict based on shipping lanes in the Persian Gulf and know what the dynamic of two people in a long relationship where the power dynamic has just completely reversed itself on a polar axis, like what's that going to do to the story of the shipping lanes? So you begin to tell the story that it itself needs or points you toward. And that's kind of exciting. It's like, how are we going to solve this? It's interesting. When you said, it flashed in front of me, when you said nightmare scenario, because I've interviewed Jeffrey Stacks, who's been saying for ages, you have to be careful. You know, Russia does not take yeah. this lightly. We are actually very close to nuclear war. Please be careful. And it's some yeah. of these people who deal with energy with Russia, so this yeah. is the overlap with your plot line of negotiating yeah. with Russia. So then you have to be of service to the importance, the gravity of this. At mm -hmm. the same time, then sometimes you must be thinking, well, how do you verify? There's certain sources you think, well, that's the their agenda maybe? How do I portray that without being just like a public service announcement? Yeah. I'm looking for humanity in these stories in the good way of like the goodness of humanity and also the horrible way of like we leak from all over the place all the time and we fail and we say the wrong thing. So I'm looking for that on every side of the conflict. I'm not looking for America versus the world or America versus a bad guy or a culture that's out to get us. I don't look at the world in that way. I try to see everything from the point of view of somebody else who may, just like we are, want the best for their country, want the best for their kids. What happens when you look at people who are on the opposite side of a conflict that you're on as people that probably, at the end of the day, have a lot of the same values that you do? How do you create a situation where that's obvious for the audience on both sides? It may not be obvious for the characters always, but it's obvious for the audience. And, I mean, it's certainly not an accident that I'm telling the story of people who, for a living, get to know people from all over the world in different cultures and different experiences, and they find common ground. That, to me, I think can humanize a lot of things that seem larger than life for us and intangible and unfathomable. And I thought it was interesting, the choice. I think she's perfectly cast, uh, Carrie Russell. But I thought it was interesting choice because she's they come off the Americans yeah. also famously. She is romantically involved with her working partner, her working husband. So there's these echoes. <laughs> A lot of echoes. Look, first of all, she's just an incredible talent. So even if she hadn't been on a show that dealt with politics and international affairs, it would have been obvious that she was able to handle intense material with a tremendous amount of nuance and power and humanity. But I'm looking for actors that can do a lot of things at the same time. I want them to be able to do intense 
thriller, high stakes drama at the same time as they're doing like elements of farce and physical comedy that don't necessarily show up in political thrillers all the time. So there's not a lot of people who can do that. And we all have seen her do both. So she was the moonshot. And I just feel very, very lucky that we got her. And she's been a dream to work with. Oh, I can imagine. And it's a departure. There was the darkness of the Americans. And this, I feel, has more light. There's something else in the future of the character, Kate. So how do you, did you get your moonshot? How did Carrie come on board? And how is she attracted to the character? She didn't want to do another TV show. She didn't want to go overseas. And she was really busy. And we met when she was cooking dinner for three sets of grandparents. And it was right before Christmas. And she showed up on Zoom. It was still a time when you did all of this on Zoom. And we just kind of hit it off as two people who are juggling way too much stuff and can't quite get it all together as much as we're supposed to appear to be able to. And fortunately, she liked the script and she liked the character. And I think a lot of what attracted her to it was the lightness and the sense of optimism and playfulness and the ability to be able to be in a story with the kind of intensity that the Americans had, but a sense of goofiness and playfulness, which is a huge part of her. I mean, she just carries this like delightful energy around with her all the time. And it's great to be able to see her portraying a character who lives in that place. Yeah, it's so nice to see that. And also she's allowed to be sexy in the role and she's got two guys after her. <laughs> more along, you know, two very sexy men themselves <laughs> competing for her attention. So it's nice to see all of these playful elements. Yeah. As you say, she has time to be playing around a little bit too because she doesn't have children, <laughs> which is interesting. Yes. yes. Yeah, and that's a kind of taboo thing, I think, with female leaders or male leaders. You're expected to have kids usually, right? Despite all of our progress, there is this almost 1950s mentality, and that's what you reveal. Like, some things have changed, but a lot really hasn't. I wanted to do a story about a marriage that was always about to fall apart for reasons that were not infidelity, and we're not children. So those are two things that I think are played a lot in film and television. Either somebody's had an affair and you just can never forgive them, and that's why the marriage is ending, even though it's true love, it's falling apart for that reason. Or the protecting of the kids and making sure that one is dealing with the family in a different way than the other. And those tropes, I feel, are real and important and well-addressed already in drama and in comedy. And I wanted to look at a marriage that was at its edge for philosophical reasons, because they have different feelings about their work and about what it means to do good in the world. I wanted that to be the thing that caused the rift that might not be healable and that they're always trying to negotiate. I forget who said that line, but it's interesting because the trope is a lot about infidelity or yeah. that kind of betrayal. Yeah. But I hadn't thought about this other kind of betrayal because they always seem to be, I think, motivated by a kind of love. So it's really complex, but I hadn't seen that as much. But who said that if I had to choose between betraying my country and betraying my friend, I hope I'd have the guts to betray my country? I don't know. I'm going to have to. But look, I, I love the quote. E.M. Forster said, I knew it was uh, British. 
Yes. Okay. I think I'd prefer, and it's not to be betraying the country, but yeah, as you said, different set of ideals. I wouldn't want to be betrayed the other way with the intimacy. It's interesting. I think that there's an essential difference in what they think they can do to get the job done, and Hal is more comfortable making a big move that might have a massive payoff or devastating consequences. And he's seen that work, and so that's what he wants to do again. Whereas I think Kate is more familiar kind of having been in the wake of the bull in the china shop and having a much closer view of what the fallout can be. She's less comfortable with that. She sees it coming, and in a way he doesn't see it coming, which is a little bit of a gift. He's willing to swing big because he doesn't know that there's anybody in his path and that anybody's gonna get knocked down on the backswing. So I think the inability to imagine the other's kind of field of vision is at the center of most of their conflicts. Yes, and there's also parallels drawn because of these residencies, you know, they are chateaus, they're like castles. In many ways, modern politics at a certain level is like a kind of royalty. And I don't know if you agree with it, we have to look up to power, but it has all these antiquated things that are in place for centuries. And yet the world has moved on, you know? Yeah. We're still looking for it all the time. We still want to see that play out. And those are the arenas where these interactions between countries do play out. We still do go to historic palaces in order to have meetings of world leaders and people who exist in our contemporary world who are more comfortable in jeans and a t-shirt have to walk into those rooms and act as though they're at home there. And I think that I certainly always looked at those people as though they understood how to do that or knew how to get it right. And I feel like probably what's more accurate is most of the time they don't. And all of the things that happen right off the screen are the kind of nightmare scenarios that we're always afraid of in our day-to-day lives. Like we're going to break something, we're going to drop something, we're going to trip and fall and humiliate ourselves and upset people around us. Being able to bring all of those dynamics to this incredibly formal space just brings out the best in both. How far do you think that we are in America from a female president? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I have written a little bit about the presidency and followed it and studied it closely enough to know that I don't ever know what's coming. I hope it's soon. Certainly looking at other countries, it seems like it ought to be doable and it seems kind of crazy that it hasn't happened here. But a little bit of what I'm looking at is what does America want in a leader and what does America want in a woman and are those things compatible? I don't think what we want in a leader is compatible with being a human being of any gender, but I think even more so for women. We kind of want people to be, you know, hard and soft and powerful and weak and warm and cold all at the same moment. And you don't get all of those in the same moment. Yeah, it's hard. And it was also you raised this interesting point that do you really want leaders that are good at campaigning, which is an unnecessary evil, but are they the best people to lead who have their egos so invested in it? Or is it better to have those who really have the country's best interests at heart? I try to look at people in those positions with as much of an open mind and open heart as possible. I think they all want the best for the country. 
But I think the people who are good at walking into a diner and shaking people's hands in a thousand different towns across a really, really diverse country with a lot of very different diners, I think the people who can walk in and handle that and meet absolutely everybody and create an instant connection with them are not necessarily the people who are interested in the kind of granularity of federal regulations on a wide series of topics. I think the people who are good at those things have cultivated over the course of their life different parts of themselves and grown different strengths. But then there comes this moment where we want one person to be able to do all of it. And we're somehow surprised when they're not good at every piece. And your own path to becoming a writer and showrunner, you did some speech writing, you know, you have the circuitous path, but why did you decide then to be a writer? When I was in the theater world, I started writing plays for me and my friends to do when we didn't have a job, and that comes up with some regularity, and realized that kind of the thrill and excitement that I got from being in plays was exponentially greater when I was writing them. And that as a writer, I was in a position to create the work by myself and not wait for somebody to put on a show and be able to really shape the creative vision of a story in a way that when I was one small piece of it, I didn't have the ability to do. Yes. And you're writing about leaders. Mm -hmm. And and also, I imagine there's a certain echo towards being a woman showrunner. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Some of it is about being a woman showrunner. And some of it, I think, is just being a showrunner after watching a lot of showrunners and feeling really sure that I had studied it enough and observed it enough and learned enough to do it really well and not make the mistakes that anybody else has made. And then getting in there and making all of the mistakes, every single one, learning that it just isn't the same when you're driving the car as when you're watching somebody drive it. And there are certainly a lot of the experiences that I had starting out in the role reflected in Kate's experience starting out in the role. The kind of things that you look for when you are trying to be helpful to whoever's running the shop are hard to let go of when you're running the shop. There is a point at which you have to hand those things over and trust other people to handle them in the way that you did and take your hands off. So that's a process. And as much as you want to be able to do it, as much as you want to be able to let go, it's different than letting go. And I'm so glad to see that there's more and more women showrunners before you just count them on your hand. Likewise, women directors. There's the thrill of writing in your room among your fellow writers, but then just seeing it, you know, that transition of what what gets added to it. What's that thrill to see it come to life in these characters? I think the most thrilling part is writing something that I really care about, that I really have a vision for. And I know where it's going and I know what I want it to be. And then turning it over to a bunch of other creative people and watching it become something else that isn't running in counter to my vision for it or the idea that I came in with. But it's watching the whole thing pop to life with the creative choices of other people doing things that I never would have thought of. Like that, that's the biggest thrill. And what's it like working in England? How did you learn your research process? Because it's difference in tone and all these things. I studied as much as I could and had as many consultants from 
both sides of the pond as possible and then just got it wrong a lot. And I'm fortunate to have people around me who are like, that word doesn't mean what you think it means. <laughs> various <laughs> key junctures. And it's been really interesting. I think in the U.S. we feel so close to the U.K. and we see so much that we have in common and that we aspire to. And in fact, the cultures are very different in ways that you don't anticipate until you're right smack in the middle of it. I just think it, it's delightful and fun and surprising and funny. And it's a great addition to going through the process of making a show. Yeah, indeed. There's a lot of differences. The way Parliament is, there, that's a whole other theater. That It's like yeah. throwing people to the lines. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's true. It's amazing because we always think of the British as being very proper. But when yeah. you see them, they're like a bunch of schoolboys shouting at each other. Yes, and that's the language of the space. It's not just a sense of less control, but it is the expected language of the people in that pit and the tone of voice and the cheering and the booing. It's great seeing a different set of dance moves in a space that we feel like we sort of understand. It's delightful. British insults yes. when they're lavish. Yes. <laughs> and with the diplomat, it's like a cliffhanger. They left it at a real moment that we have to know what happens next. Really high stakes, adrenaline drama with these complex characters. Just in closing, as you think about the future and education and the importance of the arts, who were some important teachers to you and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think that I would like young people to know that... I didn't think I was going to do this. I was not a good writer when I was young. I was not in this field until I was in my 30s. I did a bunch of other stuff, and I came into it feeling like I was behind and feeling like I didn't know as much as the people I was working with. And it passes, and you learn, and it's okay to learn on the job, and it's okay to not be ready. I think there are some people who are like, prepared to raise their hand for absolutely anything. And there are some people who feel like they need to wait until they have all of their ducks in a row and their skill set developed for everything that they might face. I just tried to go into it with a lot of humility and sense of humor about the fact that I knew less than everybody else in the room and try to figure out what my relationship was with the work that I was doing and to realize that I could write about politics and world leaders and what was happening in the most devastating, tense conflicts in the world from my position as somebody who didn't quite get it all and couldn't quite follow it all. And it turns out that everybody in it feels the same way. Everybody's dealing with limited information. World leaders are coming together and they think they've been prepared for the moment and they're not. They think they understand who they're talking to and they don't. And that sense of being able to move forward with confidence, even though you may not feel like you're ready, I think is something that I wish for a lot of people. Well, you've really forged a path. You give us something to follow and look up to. So thank you, Deborah Khan, for unfolding these nuanced dramas that help us see behind the scenes to really understand leadership, politics, how women obtain and maintain power in the 21st century, and for seeing how far we've come and how far we also have yet to go as women. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you, Mia. It was a pleasure talking with you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Mischowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk, 
with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producer in this episode was Tremel Sisson. Digital media coordinator on this episode was Sam Myers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.